Let's Reminisce, the podcast about... If you have materials and they're not organized, and let's say you pass away and your kids come in your home, they see, they're just going to see a big pile of papers. And in the grieving process of, let's say, cleaning out a house, they're not going to think it's important. Today's episode, Creating Family Archives with Margot Note. Couple of jiggers of moonlight and Before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to quickly thank a few listeners for writing reviews on Apple Podcasts. The reviews said things like, excellent storytelling, and of course, wonderfully produced. Another one said, the first episode on Jeff and Andrea was lovely. I only wish that there were more episodes to listen to. Excited to see what comes next for Rick. I promise there are more episodes coming. Got a lot going on, but I'm going to get them done, I promise. Anyway, I'm going to get more episodes out. Thank you so much for that review. Also, this other person wrote... It's well-produced as it is wholesome. Hmm. And my probably my favorite one is this. Rick, as I listened to your podcast regarding your parents, I realized how little I actually knew about how they first met. I not only found it informative, but very entertaining. At times, I experienced uncontrolled laughter. I applaud you and your family for doing a great job. As always, I'm proud to be your grandpa. Well, thank you, Grandpa. And also thank you to Science G, Moo Cow 14, and Reed Hopkins for taking the time to write and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leaving a five-star rating. I hope you'll do the same. My guest on today's show is archivist and historian Margot Note. Her latest of seven books is called Creating Family Archives, a step-by-step guide to saving your memories for future generations. Margot owns and operates her own archives and records management consulting business in New York City, where she works with clients ranging from everyday people to large companies, where she helps them make sense of their massive amounts of information, things like paper collections, records, media, and photographs. Margot has over 20 years of experience in archives and records management and has taught history and library science at St. Lawrence College and St. John's University. In my conversation with Margot, we focused on her latest book, Creating Family Archives, and we give you practical tips and tricks for helping you create your own archive to preserve your family's story. From photographs to what to keep, what to donate, how do you make groups versus lists, how do you overcome the feeling of chaos and dread when you lay out everything on your floor. Margot's advice and expertise will help you create a legacy for generations to come. And I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. All right, let's get to my conversation with Margot Note. Margot Note, welcome to Let's Reminisce. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, You're welcome. I'm so happy to be here. So place where I want to start with you, Margo, is tell me a little bit more about your your day-to-day consulting business. Tell me about your day-to-day operations. Sure. So it's all over the place and every day looks different. Um, I have um, some uh, corporate clients, like organizational clients, as well as private clients. So I'm working both in the details of processing collections um, organizing things, making finding aids for private clients, but then I'm also 
thinking about corporate legacies, doing um, a digitization strategy, kind of thinking at the top level too. So there's a combination and and I'm really privileged and having this combination of both being able to do the nitty gritty hands-on archival work, but also doing the theoretical overview, overview uh, strategic vision of an archives or a records management program. So I, I get to really float through all different levels of it. And each day looks a little bit different based on uh, priorities and, and deadlines that I have to do. I want to also talk to you about jumping into the private sector and, and doing consulting, because I feel like for those of, in my audience who don't know, I was once one of you. I, I was an archivist myself. I went to library school. And I think most people take that traditional academic path. So tell me about your plunge or going into the private sector and doing your running your own consulting business. Yeah, that happened totally accidentally. So I really was a rules follower. I was ready to work in archives my whole life. I'd worked in libraries and archives from my first job shelving books when I was in high school and then college and everything in between. And um, I was laid off. And and I think what happens is, you know, I'm mid-career so I was really thinking about what that next step was going to be. And I'm based in New York City. So I knew this layoff was coming. I was interviewing at all different places and I just could not find that logical next step. So when the layoff came, it was like a Band-Aid that was ripped off and it it gave me the freedom to figure out what, what I wanted to do. And I was able to take a risk because I really had nothing, I had nothing to lose. And so I'm really fortunate that it turned out to be one of the best things that ever happened to me, even though I hated it um, and it, I hated the anticipation of it. But it really gave me a lot of freedom. And I'm actually lucky that it happened about five years before this pandemic, because I really think if I was working in a traditional archival institution, I probably would have get, gotten laid off during the pandemic or, I, you know, something would have happened where I guess I would eventually have been where I am now. But I, I have a, a nice uh, gap of, of years to really get the experience. And I always feel I, I say that consulting is like dog years where I think even though it's five years, it feels, you know, like a trillion years and all different experiences. And it's really been a boot camp because it really allowed me to um, go out there and talk to people that have that want archival services, but have no idea what archivists do. Mm, yeah. And I think that's a perfect segue, uh, Margot, because I think the beginning of your book is like the classic story. And I'm so glad you started out that way, because I think every archivist or everyone who's worked in a library has sort of had this this moment. So sort of, I'll, I'll leave it at that. So take me to the beginning of your book and this story that you sort of tell that sort of articulates what 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 is so common for people. Yeah. So, you know, I had some time. I was beginning my consulting practice and my husband's aunt, who's basically what I call the new matriarch. So she basically, and I see this in families where uh, family members pass away and it's kind of the, the oldest daughter or the oldest sister that kind of gets all the family stuff. And so I came over her house and the family materials were all over her house, over the dining room table, kitchen, living room, everywhere. And I was completely overwhelmed. I mean, she was overwhelmed as well, but I didn't even know where to start with her. And I thought that was a really fascinating experience and, and feeling to have because I do this for a living. So 
I should be able to know, I, I shouldn't be able to get overwhelmed. But of course, I get overwhelmed every time I work with collections. That's just, I guess, part of my process. Um, I've kind of made peace with it. But I was really thinking about, you know, how do I explain to someone how to do this work and what to prioritize and especially to take um, archival practices that happen mostly in academic settings or institutional settings and how do you take that and bring it into people's homes and make it work with people's schedules and especially, you know, people don't have a bazillion dollars to spend on archival supplies or um, machinery or conservation techniques, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, how do I go about doing this? And so I got this idea of writing um, a book that I really saw in the gap in the market where people, for whatever reason, weren't really addressing this. And I saw some pieces of this being addressed in kind of genealogy um, uh, books and, and kind of the genealogy realm, but it wasn't it was kind of semi-archiving through genealogy and it wasn't really like pure archiving. So I thought, okay, let me just write something. So I self-published a book on Amazon. I wrote it in like a frenzy. I just wanted to get something out there and to really promote it because I, in one part, I wanted to give her something to, to read, but I also thought, you know, there must be so many people that need that need this material. So that's kind of the first version of this book. And it, you know, is promoting it a lot. And then Society of American Archivists had reached out to me because they they were looking for some a similar type of book for they said about 10 years. They were kind of seeking out, you know, how can we talk to an everyday audience cuz the Society of American Archivists is the professional development organization of archivists. All their books are very um, like professional literature for practitioners, not for the everyday audience. So that was a great um, experience in putting together the second edition of that book where it's much prettier. Um, it has much more like real life examples. Um, it really walks through that process and it has an added bit talking about not only kind of the physical materials, but also digital. So how to digitize a tiny bit about digital preservation, which I think is really important. And so it, it really made that second volume have everything that that first volume did, but like so much better um, in all aspects. And so it's really been my baby. Of all the books that I wrote, it's the one that I've, I think I've been the most proud of. Yeah, no, it's 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 an excellent work and I think it's so it's very easy to understand for the average person and it it really does it, it is not intimidating. You know, sometimes you think like, you know, academic books, archives just like these blank books and, and but no, it's it's very it's very well done. I I 100% agree, but I also wanted to unpack a little bit more about this feeling of being overwhelmed because I think people start there and then they just like give up. So I guess you mentioned that you 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 feel overwhelmed with every project. I had that feeling once when someone handed me fifty boxes of unprocessed stuff. How how do we how do you talk to clients or someone who's listening to this who has all this stuff from their family, and to fight through that overwhelming feeling? How like how, I guess talking just about the emotional side, then we can maybe get into sort of like the actual tactics. But like dealing with that emotionally, I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts there. That's a great question because I had that experience yesterday. So I, I've 
I'm working with a private client's collection and it's in my apartment. And I know this, you know, I've worked with her before, so I know a little bit about her life, but it's so much stuff of kind of her early days. And so the overwhelming part is me learning about the collection as I'm processing it. So if it was my own collection, I'd know what these things are, but I'm just like unpacking boxes and working basically on my floor. I mean, I have a small apartment and so I don't have much surface to work on. So I'm kind of unpacking these boxes and figuring out, you know, what I'm doing. And so, yeah, there's always this kind of feeling of dread, of overwhelm. And I, it's very familiar. It happens when I'm on site. Like I was um, on site at a city working in a storage unit for a client. And I've worked with this collection for many, many times. And this last, I was there for this last time for a week going through his photographs and again, it's this feeling of like, what have I gotten myself into? So I, I recognize that that's just a normal feeling. Um, I usually make myself a cup of coffee and step back and, and really think about what can I do to work with one section. So yesterday I was working with one box. So I knew that I had a particular length of time. I had about three hours to go through this box. So halfway through is when I really started feeling the overwhelmed feeling. So then it's getting a sense of how can I organize this better? How can I work with the space that I have to make groups? What I've found is that part of the overwhelm is that people get um, stuck on the individual items. And that's where you're going to just go bonkers insane. It makes more sense to just do big groups and big clusters. And, and archivists think in groups, not in individual items for physical materials. So I started making these groups of like, these are her diaries. Um, these are things from her college days. These are things from her high school days. This is stuff from junior high. This is from elementary school. This is her ac- accolades. So I started making these piles. And once I have those piles then I can start getting into the details of those piles, but it's it's enough for me to make those particular piles. So I was able to figure out what I had, what I had, and looked at everything that was there. And then I know that when I go back and I rehouse the materials, and I'll make a finding aid, which is just a simple inventory of what the materials are. Then I can go into more of the details of it. But it's simply getting kind of a baseline inventory of of what I have. And then I can start going and prioritizing what needs more detail. Mm-hmm. And you, you segued really nicely into my follow-up, which is sort of getting into sort of the, the specifics of like, okay, now that I've like, I'm going to emotionally push through this feeling, I'm going to actually get my hands dirty. I think the key point I want you to emphasize even more so is, is the power of series and groups. Because you're right, we like see this yearbook and we start flipping through the pages and we're like, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm guilty of being distracted when processing things. But it's, it's – talk more about that when it comes to creating groups and series to sort of – um, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. When you're creating groups and series, talk a little bit more about that. So series is more related to like bigger – so I know that there's a, a series in this example would be her um, – childhood to young adult life. So that was a series. And then I had those particular groups. Then I know there's different family members that are going to have like her mother's materials, her father's materials. That's when I start thinking about those series and groups. Um, But it's simply a matter of, 
you know, seeing, again, like emphasizing, seeing what you have, taking inventory, I suggest um, for home archivists just to put everything out. Like I know Marie Kondo talks about it a lot where you gather everything like together. So with the idea of the beginning of my book where I talk about Aunt Donna's bringing everything out, even though there is something kind of visually overwhelming by doing that, then you can take stock of what you have and get into those series and groups as you're working. But again, it's just like seeing what you have, taking stock, baseline inventory, and then prioritizing as you go along. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think uh, a really good quote that I like to think of is like, how do you eat a whale? One bite at a time. And I think that's another thing that people just need to also realize is that this is not going to be fixed tonight. It's going to take a while. And to just try your best to not get down into the individual weeds just yet. Maybe we'll get to that in a second here. Um, wanted to also uh, talk a little bit about the importance of an inventory, because when I think when people hear that word, they think of like super boring or tedious, but it, it is it is necessary. Like that, the, the inventory, I think, is one of the most crucial parts of just knowing what you have at the initial survey. And I think you mentioned this earlier, but expand on this a little bit more about like, it doesn't need to be super detailed. It just needs to be like, even just a checklist, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, the technical word is finding aid, but no one knows what that is unless you're an archivist. So I always say inventory or guide. So basically what I've done, um, for the most part, either it's like a, a spreadsheet, if you're a spreadsheet type person, or it's a Word document. And I'm I'm taking an in- inventory in the sense of I'm assigning numbers like boxes. So box one, box two, box three. And I'm simply saying what's in that box. So I can, and I typically do it at the... F- folder level if I'm working with documents. So I know that it is, um, you know, correspondence from 1944 to 1946. That would be one entry in that box. Um, And so it's just at that folder level for the most part, or a box level, or sometimes I just have a box that's just photographs. Then I know, I mean, I'll go into more detail and organize it more, but then I know that, you know, box one has the photographs. It's not in box 20. It's not in box four. It's box one. And the reason that we do a guide like that is that later on when we're trying to search for materials, and this happens in a archival repository or in our own home archives, we know that simply by looking at this spreadsheet or this Word document, exactly what we're looking for. So instead of digging through boxes to find and trying to remember, okay, box four contains this or that, I know by by simply looking at that list exactly where something is. And that list itself also has some type of order to it. So I know usually it's, um, for many collections I'm working with, it's chronological. So you can follow someone's life through those box entries. And that's a really easy way of knowing um, what you have. So we call it physical and intellectual control, which is just a really fancy way of saying, like knowing what you have and where it is so you can find it again. And this is incredibly helpful for home archivists, but also, you know, in past positions I had where once I was able to um, have a baseline kind of outline or organization of the materials that we had when I would get queries You know, a president would ask me, you know, when, you know, who did I have, you know, lunch with in London in 19, you know, 94? 
I was able to look through, you know, the digitized or the the newsletters or the the board minutes to find that exact piece of information. And before that, I had that inventory, that would be a day long project of trying to answer this question of like, you know, decision maker that made decisions about my position. Right. But then once I had that inventory, it was like I was the magical oracle where I could immediately find information, especially more and more obscure information too. You know, I would find tiny little details where before there's no way you'd be able to find that. So I always um, talk, you know, both with my private clients, but also organizational clients that, you know, you really need to get a sense before you do anything else, you really need to get a sense of what you have, because that is the foundation that everything else is built upon. People, when they're in the middle of the processing of all these objects, photographs, whatever it might be, they go through this debate, what to keep, what to donate, what to throw away. How do you help people navigate that process? Because I think that is part of the overwhelming thing. People don't do it because I don't want to make these tough decisions. We'll just keep it all. Just keep it all. We'll worry about it later. So tell me, tell me how you help people through that. Yeah, so I think, especially with home archives, it's really a it can be very sentimental and it can be a very personal decision about what they keep and what they don't. Um, For the most part, you know, things have been carried on for years and years and years. There's not that much what we would call deaccessioning in the archives world or getting rid of stuff. Um, But there are some choice things. So when there's like a bazillion copies of something, so if we have 20 copies of a book or, you know, you only really need three copies. You don't need that excessive amount of copies. Um, But then sometimes it doesn't make sense to get rid of stuff. So it it works in an opposite way. So with photographs, especially like back in the day where you'd go to the photo mat and you get like multiple copies of something like duplicates for X amount of dollars, people feel like they have to go through and get rid of all those duplicates And that's really taking up a lot of time and it's not necessarily saving space. So it works in both ways. Um, What I've also found is, especially with family collections, there are materials that have um, kind of a yucky feeling attached to them. And, you know, I think when we talk about families and, you know, it's all the positive aspects of families, which are certainly important, but there's also, you know, a dark side to families too. And a lot of these materials might bring up um, bad feelings. I know that for me, I'm really tied to the physical. So like even clothes that I've worn where I had a bad experience, like I always associate that bad experience with that piece of clothing, for example. And it's it's hard to um, detach from that. So anything that has kind of a feeling where you're not really sure or it feels like an emotional response, I always say, like, you know, put it aside Give yourself a week or a month to make that decision. We don't have to make any rash decisions. So again, it's it can be very subjective, um, and it's it's very personal. And um, sometimes it's a matter of giving it to other family members. Sometimes it's a matter of if it makes sense for a repository to have those materials, you might be able to donate. Although that can be sometimes a long process. Um, but again, there's different avenues you can you can go you can go with to figure out like what you want to keep and what you want to get rid of. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Before we get into maybe some of the more specific like 
items to process like old media or papers and things. Photographs, of course, is a passion of yours. I also want to talk about just pause for a second and remind people that like or ask you, why is it important for people to do this for, for their own? Is it for personal legacy? Is it for passed down through generations? I mean, the answer is obvious to me, but I, 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 I want to hear how, how you think about it and you think and explain it to people who might be new to doing home archiving. Yeah, so it's important for legacy. I mean, obviously, legacy, our history, knowing what we have. I, I found that it also helps to kind of pass along that legacy, too, because if you're, you know, if you have materials and they're not organized, and let's say you pass away and your kids come in your home, they see, they're just going to see a big pile of papers. And in the grieving process of, let's say, um, cleaning out a house, they're not going to think it's important. And then only later will you figure out, okay, this is, you know, these materials are really important. So it's a way for us to connect to the past. So I love archival materials because they're primary sources. And this comes from my background as a historian, is that we, the way that we can time travel is to look at those original materials. So primary sources like a diary or a journal or correspondence, postcards, it really gets you in the head of the people that created the materials. And so if those things aren't really protected, then that that legacy and that that, that link to the past is, is forgotten. Um, you know, I focus a lot on paper, like documents and photographs, which I think are really obviously very important and some of my favorite types of formats. But there's also a sense of with digital documents and with AV materials, if you don't preserve it right now or soon, they're going to be lost forever. So we know that for the most part, you know, with paper documents, paper-based documents for photographs, photographs fade after a while, especially color photographs, but they're they're going to be readable over time where, you know, the, everyone's VHS tapes are not. So that's something that because of the technology, you know, we don't have the, mach the machinery to read the um, VHS tapes are no longer being manufactured. And because of the nature of the magnetic tape of VHS, VHS tapes, that stuff is going to be gone. So that's something where I think time is of the essence. Um, and especially with digital, digital materials too, with digital files, there's this idea of, um, you know, they're so easy to work with. They're so accessible. You can send them all around the world. But we don't really know how long those materials are going to be preserved. So that's another aspect of something that we kind of take for granted because it's easy to use now. But you have to think about, you know, 100 years from now, is, is Microsoft Word going to be available? You know, what software is going to be able to, to read these materials? Whereas we can read parchments from centuries ago because we don't have, you know, as long as they're not in horrendous conditions, they're still readable. So, you know, that's a really long answer to your question, but I think the idea is, you know, if we don't, if we don't preserve our own history, you know, no one else is going to. And I think it's a real gift to both your yourself, your family. And if, if you have, you know, sons and daughters and other relatives that you're really passing on that legacy because, and also with oral history, you know, once relatives pass away, they're no longer there. I remember when I was um, in high school, for whatever reason, I'm so thankful I did this. I had the foresight to write down some Lithuanian words that my grandmother used to say she would have these funny phrases 
And I would, I wrote them down, you know, just on the back of an envelope that I just found, you know, cause every, you know, she never had paper. She just wrote on the back of envelopes and things. And I phonetically wrote down these Lithuanian phrases. And if I hadn't captured that in that moment, you know, when I was in high school, all that stuff is gone and I can't go back. And so I'm so thankful that I had the foresight and I even look in, um, I was looking at the collection I was processing yesterday and someone, even though it was like with ink, it wasn't like properly archival the way that she was writing down these captions. She had tremendous captions on the back of all of her photographs. And they, she would say the exact date who were in the photographs. I mean, just brilliant captions. And that's a t- and this is stuff from maybe the 1910s to the 1960s. That's the type of materials. All those people are gone now. You know, and some of the family members might understand where things were, but um, it was a, a kind of a beautiful legacy um, that she was able to capture that. Even my father, who was in the Navy, he had, took all these slides of his kind of Navy, you know, this is during the Vietnam era. He must have been an archivist, too, because he was writing down his thoughts, you know, and I got inside his head, you know, he would say, another handsome sailor, and it was a picture of him and his friends. So, you know, it was like a nice little window into my father, and my father's not around anymore. And he never talked about his Vietnam experience. Um, And so that's that, his slides and his captions were really, you know, a window into that world that's lost. And so it's up to me to preserve that and understand it by preserving it. We'll be back with Margot Note right after this short break. Right now I'm printing my stickers for uh, a bird sticker pack. This is a Canon PIXMA Pro 100. It is uh, a very large printer. This entire table barely, I feel like, holds it. It has eight ink cartridges. Cyan, black, photo cyan, photo magenta, magenta. Like, what is what is photo magenta versus magenta? I'm not sure, but I have to buy uh, different inks for them. This is Rachel Morosky. I call myself the owner and illustrator of Rach Illustrate LLC. I usually add LLC on the end just to make it sound fancy. Rachel makes all kinds of custom artwork, paper goods and handmade gifts, all original stuff. Things like greeting cards, sticker packs, fabric lanyards, enamel pins, and washi tape. She designs and prints everything from her home studio and sells products through her Etsy store and website. And as a middle schooler, I loved like cartoons and anime, so I started drawing only to learn through drawing cartoons. And that kind of got me into the Comic-Con convention circuit where I would learn to draw by drawing cartoons that I liked and then I would start selling cartoons. And then once I started really enjoying drawing and getting good at drawing, I was like, okay, well, maybe I'll do something real with this and stop drawing, you know, copyrighted material just for fun and like actually start doing original artwork, drawing off of photographs that I take. All of my greeting cards also feature a pun. It'll usually feature a single illustration and then some sort of fun pun that matches that. So one of my most popular cards is a miso ramen card, and it has a detailed illustration of like a little ramen meal in a bowl. And then the greeting card tagline is, you make me so happy, or like, you know, miso ramen. Ha ha ha. 
You can explore all of Rachel's products on her Etsy store, linked in the show notes. And if you're interested in a custom design or piece of artwork, you can email her through her website, rachillustrate.com. That's R-A-C-H-illustrate.com. Thank you to Rach Illustrate for sponsoring today's episode. Oh, oh, and there it goes. It has a cute little sound at the end when it's done. You mentioned to me that photos are one of the things that you particularly enjoy doing in that, you know, visual literacy is, is, is really key. And I think it's very common. I know in my personal family, my mom just has shoe boxes full of photographs. So let's maybe get into something even more specific into the weeds here when it comes to boxes of photographs. Um, how do you approach may- maybe that situation? And then um, what are maybe some, so start with that and then maybe expand upon like how people can increase their visual literacy because it's actually a skill that has to be developed and there's a lot of common misconceptions about what that exactly means. Yep, visual literacy is something that I'm completely obsessed with because I think most people think that they have visual literacy or they can read a photograph the same way that we can read a document, but it really comes with a particular type of skill. Um, So as far as looking at photographs, especially like depending on the time period, we can get a lot of information. So um, for older photographs, let's say Victorian era, we can tell or kind of figure out purely by looking at a photograph and not having um, any clues about what we're looking at. We can look at, let's say, the format, and that can help us give us like a a date range of what these materials are. Um, Especially Victorian era, um, things like hats, would change and, and um, sleeves, like kind of the shape of a, a woman's sleeve of a dress, would change with the fashion every year. Whereas they would usually wear, you know, one or two dresses for years and years and years that would might be slightly changed with the style. So even looking at hats and sleeves, we can maybe figure out what we're looking at with babies because their um, babies were all in dresses. We can tell if they're. Um, like a girl or a boy by where their hair part is, you know? So there's certain things that you just learn by looking through the materials. Um, With more modern photographs, we can look at the fashion sense. We can look at the cars in the background. We can get some clues about what's going on. So it's a real way of really looking at a photograph and figuring out um, and looking almost at it like a grid, like seeing, okay, who are the people? What's their body language? There's this really interesting picture of my of my grandmother with her parents so her mother and her stepfather and i always knew her stepfather was I'll, I'll just say problematic and you can tell from her body language that she is just hates him and it really gave me a sense of like oh boy you know i had that knowledge but i could see it in in how she was standing and how she was her whole body was changed and so i thought that was a really interesting piece of reading that document or that that photograph um with the boxes of photographs you know the shoe boxes boy that can be a real that can be really challenging it's just again it's a sense of putting in groups of uh, of the photographs seeing the patterns that you can see um sometimes i recommend for people that are working with collections that are both documents and photographs 
to work with the documents first because you can read, they're kind of easier to get information from. You can read those documents and get a sense of times and people, events, activities. And with that kind of background knowledge, you can start to figure out and use some detective skills to figure out what the photographs are depicting. And so that's a way of really, and and that's detective work, and that's really looking through the materials. Um, It helps when it's your own materials or family materials, because you can ask relatives, okay, what's going on in this photograph? A lot of times when I'm working with private clients, I don't really know the background of things. So I'm getting a sense of I'm guessing that what the materials are and then I can ask my clients, you know, what's happening here, what's happening there. Um, but again, it, it helps even look at like fashion. Like I was working with a collection of stuff from the 90s and because I kind of grew up in that era, I could basically figure out what year things were just based on like fashions and backgrounds because I had that knowledge myself. Um, but with things like working with the Victorian collections, I'm reading books about you know, Victorian fashion to figure out, you know, what, uh, what time period I might be looking at. Mm-hmm. So something that I wanted to ask you about to, to expand upon is that digitizing things is not always the final resting place, the final answer, because when you digitize something, you then run into a, a all new sorts of potential issues or storage and any number of things that we maybe can get into later. But when it comes to maybe sticking to photographs, digitizing all of them as soon as possible, that maybe isn't the right thing to do first. T- tell me about your thoughts on that. Yeah, so I always suggest organizing the physical first and then digitizing selections of that physical. And the reason that I say that is that if you automatically start digitizing stuff, you have a physical mess and a digital mess. You just wind up having two huge messes. And there is this um, fallacy that everything should be digitized, and that's simply not true. It's unnecessary, unnecessary and wildly expensive to do and also to maintain over time. So I suggest organizing your you know, physical materials, so organizing your physical photographs, and then you're going to start to get those pieces of that huge, you know, depending on how big the collection is, like a big collection of, let's say, a thousand photographs. You might be able to select the top, 20, 50, 100, uh, 200 that you that you'll want to digitize. Not everything has to be digitized. Um, and I also suggest if people are overwhelmed by digitizing, which is understandable, it, it can be very technical. Um, it's easy to digitize something for now, but not have it have it lasting for the long term, is to reach out to um other people, like external partners to do it. So you can have, there's national vendors that you can send materials out to. Um, There are local vendors. So your local like frame shop or camera shop or digitization shop in, you know, your neighborhood, your town, your city can help with those materials. Um, Even sometimes I'm starting to see in libraries, they're having these Um, kind of memory hubs where they teach you how to digitize things, how to digitize audio tapes. 
So I think that's becoming popular as well, that there's kind of an education around how to digitize these materials because you really want to digitize, and this is kind of gets really in the weeds, but you want to digitize at a high enough level and have certain formats that are long lasting rather than just to digitize, just to digitize. Mm -hmm. I just want to give people a recommendation here. What my wife and I have done with our photos is we have what's called a scanning party. Um, we try to make it fun. Like we, we put on some fun music, we get out some salsa, obviously away from the materials, but we, um, we try to make it fun. We play music, we, we joke about the photos and, and, and we digitize them together. And then I think we shared them on social media. Hey, just digitize some. Uh, and a funny story was I had, I digitized a photo that I thought I kind of went through the, did the initial inventory and I said, okay, these are like the 10 that I really love and want to make sure they never get lost. And then I did that posted them on Facebook, had an old buddy say, hey, that was at my party. And like he then sent me all the photos from that person. So we kind of like had this like little moment of like shared history online, which was really fun. So I think also like you're right, scanning can be very intimidating, very technical, but literally just try and make it fun. And I actually, I think I felt that that really helps pass the time um, and really and is make it even more enjoyable. Something else I wanted to talk to you about, Margot, is that <clears throat> I think a lot of people are hesitant to even do any type of organization, period. Um, I was curious in your client work, are, do you ever run into people who are just like really anti-organization and sort of, and really they, they don't see the bigger picture about the importance of having things organized in, in a way that's sort of so you can find things? Um, have you ever dealt with that situation before? And if so, like how how have you handled that? Well, I think... With my type of work, because it is kind of, it's weird, like archival consulting is just totally weird. Like, I don't know how else to explain it. It's something that most people don't understand um, and don't see the value. Um, or it has to, I found sometimes not so much with my private clients because they're motivated for their own personal reasons um, to organize things or to have it organized. Um I've found that with my private clients, sometimes they've hired people like, you know, their high school neighbor or um, I've had with one of my clients, they use like a, it's called the, I'm going to get the association wrong, like a association of photo organizers, professional photo organizers that do some type of work, but it's, you know, and I don't want to. I don't want to be negative, but, you know, I'm looking into that per, that organization. And I'm like, I, I don't really agree with some of their, with some of their, the way that they're doing things. But so I think what I found both, oh, I should say with private clients and organizational clients, they try to do that work with interns or, or people that are well-meaning, but non-professional. And it winds up becoming a bigger mess. And so they wind up hiring me. So with my private clients, I haven't really found this idea that they don't want things organized. I think they, it's more like they want things to be totally like Google, where it just, there's a database and they can just look up anything, like they can put in information, they can immediately find that image. And that's just, that's just not going to happen. Um, for private clients without being like ridiculously expensive. So I think sometimes it's, figuring out what their expectations are and giving them a, a solution that is um, doable and affordable. With my organizational clients, it's more, it has to be a pressing need. And for the most part, 
people have been sitting on this problem for years and years and years. I had a client this summer, very well-known organization that does incredible work, and they needed someone to help them. They, they want to digitize materials and have them available on a website, but there's a lot of there's a lot of legal stuff and privacy stuff that has to be figured out and it's going to be incredibly expensive. And so as I was working on this project, I'm reading this correspondence that had to do with the archives. And in the eighties, they were writing, we need to hire someone to help us figure out how to do this. So that's how old that, that problem was. It was decades old. I found with records management, which is, you know, which is similar to archives, but a lot of times there's physical documents that that the only time people really reach out for me for records management issues is that they're moving buildings so they don't want to move physical records that they no longer legally need so that's when that's kind of that the move is the thing that makes them think okay we need to hire a records manager so it's very interesting what that motivation is and it has to come from them because I can do you know I read all these sales books and I don't think I'm a necessarily like slick saleswoman, but I try to make this this sale of, you know, why you need my ser- services. But for both private clients and organizational clients, the need has to be within them and it has to be there for a long time before they make that call to me. And then I can work with them and, and sometimes get you know, members of their staff to to get on board and I can help them along the way. But it really has to be something that people see as a pressing need because it's something that's, it's good to do, it's important to do, but it's not important and urgent to do for the most part. Right, right. When it comes to family archives, if you could sort of say, you could lay out your dream family archive or for, for a client, what, what what you want for a client who who wants to, do a better job for their family stuff. Um, describe that person and, and sort of what they have done. Um, bef- before they come to me or what? Yeah, I guess like let, let's just say like the, the person is done. They, they've like completed all their organization with you. I guess what does it look like now? They obviously went from like a giant pile of stuff in their living room. Now they are done. They've consulted you. What does that look like? Sure. So when things are organized, you know, I've, I've worked with people that it is literally a pile in their living room. Um, so when, and it seems like a tremendous amount of stuff, but once it's organized and in records boxes or manuscript boxes, it's much more condensed. It's organized. So it's a smaller footprint of the stuff. There's an inventory of, of what we have. And then if, if they want, usually they're working with me to digitize things or I have a potential client now that they want to both uh, organize this particular set of letters, they want to digitize it, and then they want to make it into a book. So they want both the physical, you know, the, the physical stuff organized, digital, like, you know, all these letters digitized, but then they also want a thing, like a physical thing that comes out of that process. So I think there's different deliverables that people are people want or are expecting. And so f- for this potential client, they want this 
they want this book of these letters. But to get that book, we have to do all these other steps to get to that book. Now, they might hire someone that only does that book and not do the archives, but from to hire me, it's going to be holistic. So I'm going to make sure that, you know, I set people up, that everything's organized, accessible, and then they can use the guide to figure out what they want. I think what happens with um, consultants in general, um, and also archival cons- consultants too, whether it's a private client or an organizational client, it's almost like there's this... Um, I don't want to say a parasitic relationship, but it's like the consultant like is always there to help and always like you can't access the information unless you have the consultant where what I want to do is get that client to that next level that they can find the things that they want. So if I'm setting up a private client, they know exactly where everything is. They don't have to ask me, Margo, you know, where is this materials? Because they have that guy, they can find it themselves. And so I think, with any type of client, it's helping them in a particular set period of time for a project and then getting them to that next level and getting them that independence so that they're not, you know, they can, they can work with their materials without having to depend on me. Margo, thank you so much for joining me. I really do appreciate your time. Uh, before I let you go here, if someone wants to get in touch with you about uh, an archiving project for consulting, uh, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? They should look at my website. So it's margonote.com and my email is margo at margonote.com and they can just shoot me an email, take a look at my website. Um, I'm, ha- I'm happy to help and, and talk through any type of projects that people have. Excellent. Well, Margo, thank you so much. Really do appreciate your time. Thank you. This is a lot of fun. Another thank you goes out to Margo Note for taking the time to come on Let's Reminisce. Margo and I also talked about the best supplies and products you can buy for your family archiving project. To access that conversation, you'll have to become a premium member, where you'll also gain access to several other bonus conversations. You can learn more about all the premium membership benefits linked in the show notes. There's also a link to Margo's book in the show notes, Creating Family Archives. If you like this conversation, trust me, you'll like the book even more. Today's episode was hosted and produced by me, Rick Brewer. Rachel Morowski designed our show art. Music in this episode comes from Blue Dot Sessions. Let's Reminisce is an independent podcast and brouhaha audio production and funded by you, the listener. Thank you for your support. And most importantly, thank you for listening. This podcast will always be free. Until next time. Ha ha.